This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. And goodness, I am so glad to be back because it's going to be a great episode. But before we even get into anything else, I need to make sure that everybody knows that with me, as he is always, is Dan Gunther. Hey Dan, how are you? Hey Matthew, doing great. Uh, excited to be doing another one of these really awesome author interviews that we really get the pleasure to do every once in a while here. Uh, how about yourself? How, how are things going today? I'm doing well. I was just surprised. I, I see that you're uh, wearing a very colorful, bright mustard yellow shirt today. So you must be really excited that we're going to be in the TOS era today. So, Yeah, my, my clothing is rather animated today. So uh, yeah, I thought you'd like that. Oh, I just thought that was just like a gif going on from the neck down. So that's, it's, it's nice. Uh, <laughs> oh man. No, we don't actually have a ton of news. In fact, we don't have any news today. Uh, we're just kind of scouring around. There's, there's really nothing coming out with all the news we had last week about things coming up from Margaret. So, uh, but that just means we have more time to talk to James uh, about the ladder fire. And to me, that's the best news ever. But before we get into that, hey, let everybody know just where they can find us uh, online and all the ways they can connect with us here at Literary Treks. Definitely, Matthew. Well, Literary Treks, of course, is just one of the many podcasts we have here on Trek FM. Uh, We have shows covering all corners of the Star Trek universe and, of course, beyond with Matthew's 602 Club over there. And uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you're an Apple user, uh, you can find us on iTunes. When you're there, be sure to hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. This really helps us rise in the search results on iTunes, and especially during this, the 50th anniversary, you know, people really are looking for all things Star Trek, and you'd really be helping those people out to find all the really great podcasts we have here on the network. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, And of course, you can go to the website and stream and download the MP3 file, as well as grab the RSS link there as well. If you want to get into contact with us, we have a form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. One thing you could also do there is leave us a voicemail. We would really love to hear from you that way. Uh, Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. 
Also on Facebook, we have our listeners-only group, the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. It is a closed group, so we you will have to be approved, but just go ahead, search it up, click join, and we'll add you right away. On Goodreads, you can find us, our Goodreads group, uh, for literary treks, where we have bookshelves with all our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up for future episodes. And of course, there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics. Just go to goodreads.com and search literary treks. Dan, I have to say, it is just so much fun when uh, we get these opportunities to talk to an author on the show, obviously. And uh, I'm really excited because this is the first time that, and, and we've talked to James so many times now on the show. He's been such a great friend of the show. And he's always wanted to write in this era. And James finally got the opportunity to write in that super colorful, wonderfully technicolored era of Star Trek. In fact, well, he wrote in the TAS era, so that's even more colorful. James, <laughs> welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Thanks for that great welcome. Oh, really yeah. happy to have you on the show for sure. Always a pleasure uh, to talk to you, especially. Well, James, okay, so we were we were talking a little bit b- before we even started recording, and you know, you were mentioning obviously writing TOS and in that really classic era. And you know, I was wondering for you, and I'm sure you've been thinking about this for years, what you would do. And so you have your first opportunity to really get into the five year mission. But you also placed this tale at the beginning of TAS and so really wanted to hear how you decided to come up with the the time period of TOS that you would go with and where this idea of the ladder fire came from. Well, in terms of the time period, um, obviously, we've got three seasons of of great classic Trek uh, with tons of great stories there. And I think straight away, I didn't want to tell a story that was set in in the continuity of of the live action show right because i felt like you know all of that time's been pretty much filled up and i'd rather do a story that's kind of passing on beyond that point but at the same time i didn't want to go too far down the timeline because you know we've got the five-year mission and everything like that and of course you know if you if you if you hold to the idea that the animated series is kind of that's taking place in the latter half of the five-year mission i thought well this is the sort of era that i want to put it in and uh, and I've always had a fondness for the animated series. I mean, you know, it is a little crazy and wacky at times, but there, there there's some cool stuff in there. Uh, so I wanted to sort of, you know, kind of doff my cap to that to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not embarrassed by it. I don't think it's silly. I think it's right. fun. And I think we should, you know, we should try our best to consider. Star Trek's done some crazy stuff in its time. I think why not consider that, you know, giant cloned Spocks and talking plants and stuff. Yeah, we can have that. Why not? Yeah. So I wanted to sort of uh, legitimize that, I guess. Um, but in terms of the story, you know, like you say, it was always something that I wanted to do because, because classic Trek is, is my first fandom, you know, it, it's the, it's the, yeah. it's, I came to Star Trek through that show. I have a lot of love for it. And I've always wanted to tell a story with those characters, with the, you know, Kirk, Spock and McCoy in that, in that tonality of that sort of 1960s style of show. So more than anything, even before I started thinking about what the actual, plot itself would be the important thing to me was to try and come up with something that felt like it was a 1960s era science fiction story is to try and Mm, try and capture that that sense 
of what I love the most about TOS, which is I tried to do something kind of bold and brassy and, 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 you know, and as you say, you know, technicolor and widescreen that really feels like it has a sort of bigness to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, but, but at the same time, not trying to update it too much and make it feel like it's, it's kind of trying to shoehorn it into a more modern sensibility. I was more interested in making it feel like this could be an episode of the original series if they'd had the budget. Well, and I feel like you did, uh, you know, a really good job kind of evoking that feeling and, uh, especially kind of for me, putting it right at the start of the animated series era, like, uh, leading off with kind of Chekhov leaving the enterprise and Eric's coming aboard and kind of showing that relationship between the two of them as, you know, instructor and student. I thought that was a really cool way to kind of really firmly ground exactly where this is taking place. And, um, yeah, and it really felt like kind of an extension of what we got to see on screen, both in TOS and TAS. And that that was totally the reason I did it, um, because certainly having, you know, the, the sort of Chekhov Eric's changeover, that kind of plants a flag in continuity. So anybody who's not sure about where the story's taking place, that very much says it, it goes right here. And it's something that uh, I don't think anybody has ever sort of shown that before. So I thought that was a cool event that I could kind of canonize i guess in 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 the literature but the great thing about having arex come on board the ship is it also means he's a great viewpoint character for me to mm. tell stories yeah. through, you know so he can be the guy who go well i don't know who i don't know who um kirk is or uhura or spock i don't know these people you know he, he's only heard about them secondhand through you know letters that Chekhov has sent him so he has an opportunity to be the kind of person who can commentate on on the situation because he's almost the outsider at this point in the story Mm -hmm. So that gave me uh, an, an opportunity to to sort of shine a light on characters through the eyes of a character who doesn't know them, rather than just kind of saying, you know who Kirk is, you know who Spock is, here's the same old kind of rote description of who these guys are. Well, and, and what was fun is that you put that with the almost kind of like more outlandishness of TAS and and made it fit within the structure that we know from TOS. So it really does just feel like if a TAS episode had come to life and was just slightly more serious, you know, that was more in the vein of, you know, less for kids and more for, you know, what we would have seen in in adults uh, and, and for the original series. And I love that because I, I, I could imagine, you know, the uh, filmation, for this, you know, this crazy planetoid uh, being thing, this cosmosome and the little ships coming out, like that all made sense. And but I could also put that in my mindset and make it in a TOS format as well. So I love how you were just pushing both of those things together and really making them one. And um, because I've I've always kind of liked TAS, I just I think it's. Um, it's a great experience for Star Trek to kind of see it without the limitations or as many limitations budget wise. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the kind of the angle I was going to, to kind of, you know, create something that feels like connective matter. So you can, you can believe it's pulling from both of those sources, but hopefully being true to, to both of them. Well, one of the things that you did as well, you know, you, you had this wonderful uh, world building that, that you've been, really i think so good at especially with sight unseen and and it really had this almost like planet of the apes versus the geico geckos <laughs> and so for you as you're a creator um creating new races for star trek and especially here 
uh, in a little bit more of the mold of TAS. How talk about the inspiration for those races and and for of course this monstrous threat that they end up facing. Sure. Well, you know, one of the the things, of course, you can always do in a book is is that you don't have to worry about the effects budget. So it's true. <laughs> you, know, you can you can create a species that you know that, that that can be kind of really strange and and sort of totally out there. But at the same time, I didn't want to go too completely crazy and have kind of like you know talking crystals or super intelligent shades of the color blue, right? I wanted them to be people that you could <laughs> at least empathize with. So um, in terms of, of creating the, the Sahari is I, I thought, well, you know, I, I like the idea of creating a species of, of like ape-like beings. And there is very much a kind of a nod towards Planet of the Apes there, you know, is it so that you can almost imagine maybe those characters having a very similar look to the way they did in, in the movies. But I wanted to go with that and then just sort of take it in a different direction is the idea of what, what a culture would be like if it had evolved from an ape-like species is that how would their, you know, how would their sit that they, they have, um, you know, how would they build spaceships? You know, what, what would their cities look like? Is that, you know, small little details like the fact that there's no staircases anywhere because, mm, yeah. you know, because they don't use, they just need, nobody ever bothered to invent the staircase because they, you know, they climb up poles or they climb up walls because that's the kind of nature of their physicality. And, uh, and once I started putting that all together, you know, the, the, the concept of them started, uh, sort of, you know, coming into a sort of sharp focus, and of course, they're also the product of their environment, which is, you know, they're living in, on this planet inside this kind of nebula cloud shell where they don't really know that the rest of the universe exists. Uh, and so that affects them sort of culturally as well. And that changes the, the nature of who they are. And then when we have, as you say, you know, the, the, the gecko species, these, you know, we've seen, um, we've seen lizard creatures, obviously in Star Trek a few times, you know, we've seen the, we've seen the Gorn. And, and when you think of the Gorn, you know, they're kind of like T-Rex people. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, what other, obviously if there's, uh, you know, there, there would be other kinds of lizard species. And I thought about, well, maybe like, you know, would, would you have a species that's kind of has a sort of velociraptor kind of look to it? And that was an idea I thought about. And then I thought, well, that's kind of a little bit too aggressive. You know, it, immediately if you met guys who were, look like velociraptors, you think, oh my God, these guys are obviously the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try and make it a little bit more sort of, you know, vague than that. And so I hit on the idea of, of making them a little bit more like the geckos, you know, is having this sort of thing where they're cl- climbing up the walls and that they have these like diff- differential skin tonalities to them. And immediately that sort of idea was spitting out into the idea of them having clans and being sort of part of a, of a family and, and uh, having this sort of larger structure. And I, the idea I really liked was the idea of the crew of their ships literally being family members. Mm-hmm. So that you have a kind of, you know, your commanding officer is the mother and the father. And then the, the sort of the other characters, uh, the other crew members would be, um, would be members of that sort of extended sort of family. And then, and of course, with lizard creatures, you know, lizards have, uh, you know, lay lots of eggs. So the idea of like a big clutch of eggs and all those eggs are hatching. And then, okay, this guy's going to be your first officer and this guy's going to be your, your communications officer or your weapons officer. And, and, so <laughs> yeah. there's, and so there's a whole family structure. And then, of course, that whole idea of them having crew as family, I think, in a larger sense, kind of plays to the idea of the Enterprise crew being a sort of found family, where with, with the, the lizard race, the break hell, for them, it's a literal family. So that when um, they come into conflict and you know, a family member is killed, it's like they all feel it in a very empathetic and very strong way, which is part of the 
story that leads into the whole conflict that the that the plot is based around. So interesting too for me. One of the things that I saw, and I was wondering if this was actually a connection you meant to make. The Sahari kind of have this um, this ship in which things are living inside, and it really reminded me of the Zerillion ship mm-hmm. from Enterprise, mm-hmm. where. You know, everything was alive in there, and and I I kind of got that feeling when I was walking through that you know new ship that you created in that new race, uh, a little bit like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I like the idea of the sort of the, um, the idea that you know grassy carpets in the corridors, uh, being a thing that would you know you, if you're a species that you know you, you don't have shoes, you walk around barefoot. The idea of of literally touching something from your home world. And having that with you at all times and having that be sort of an aspect of, of, of your home, I thought was a, was a clever idea, you know, and, and it felt to me like they would be a species that would be very tied to the nature of their universe and the nature of their, their home planet, literally the, you know, the, the, the floor and the fauna of it. So having that transferred onto their ships, you know, they wouldn't like the idea of walking around inside like a, an antiseptic kind of tin can for them they'd want it to feel like home so to me that was kind of a logical connection that they would have something like that on board their ships well i really love that like that really jumps out at me like a lot of uh stories especially on the television shows and that kind of thing you get aliens that you know are very superficially oh this one looks like a lizard this one you know whatever but like i really feel like you've put a lot of thought and effort into these cultures and how they work and you know how they interact with uh coming up against other cultures especially and kind of exploring that dynamic when we get this kind of major uh encounter between the two cultures what all happens from that and for me that really feels like the primary motivation for most things that end up happening in this book seems to be fear uh so you know that's something that that seems to be explored through tormid uh you know committing the atrocities that started everything in motion and then the fear that the Breg Hell have towards the Sahari leading them to take the actions they take. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you see as the primary motivation or source of the fear that drives people to do and say these terrible things. And, you know, especially thinking about today's world and like the politics of fear that we see so much, I think, you know, in all three of our respective countries represented represented here, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how fear really motivates the characters in this book. Uh, Dan, you just completely nailed it on the head right there. You know, that's exactly what I was going for with this. Is It is very much every one of the characters, you know, who, who finds themselves sort of pulled into the conflict that's at the heart of this story. They are reacting to a fear of the other, you know, to a, to a fear of outsiders, to a fear of aliens. And I think a lot of that has come from from what I see sort of in the real world. I mean, when I was uh, putting this story together, you know, there was, there was an election going on at the time and, and a lot of the politics I was seeing were very much kind of about how in- encouraging this country to be kind of isolationist and, and you know, and, and summoning up a lot of fear of people talking about immigration and those kind of things. And to me, that, that feels like something that's very much an antithesis to the positive message of Star Trek, which is about mm-hmm. inclusion and about unity and about sort of moving forward together. And I thought this is a Star Trek, you know, this is a Star Trek issue. This is a Star Trek story. So, you know, how do I tell an interesting and compelling action tale, 
but you know do what tos always does well which is you know put a little bit of a morality play in there as well so that's kind of where i was going with it is that it is you know a character who is fearful of something who makes a terrible choice and then basically can't climb down from that mistake and it gets worse and worse and the situation just gets, you know, completely out of control until it's, you know, it's a war. And then the other side, you know, you have other people who, who are afraid of, of their place in the universe who kind of have this understanding, well, you know, this is where we are and we're the masters of our domain and everything's great and we're in charge. And then they find out that that's not even remotely true. And of course, anybody would be afraid of that. But the question is, is do you, can you get past that fear and can you, you know, can you step beyond it? And so we have characters, you know, in that situation who are sort of embracing it and saying, no, you know, this is, this is an evolutionary step for us. And then we have, uh, you know, our, our characters from, uh, from the enterprise who, who are caught in the middle of this, who are trying, you know, in both ways to kind of extend a hand of friendship to, to both parties and say, look, you know, if we, if we come together, we can work this out. And it's sort of the, you know, it's Kirk and the crew. They're trying to, trying to find the third path i think that's something that star trek's always done well is, is there's a there's a school of thought that the, the three main characters of, of of star trek kirk spock and mccoy are kind of exemplars of three kind of mindsets mm -hmm. so if you think you know spock is the rational coldly logical one so it's like logically captain we must do this you know and then um you know mccoy is the you know blasted you pointy your thinking machine you know and he's the one who's like you know <laughs> go, go straight for the sort of like the emotional visceral response and kirk is the guy who's kind of caught in the middle who's trying to create a synthesis of both of those responses to come up with a third way and i think that is very much the function of what those characters what, what our Trek characters are doing in this story is they're saying to these two warring factions, there is a better way than this. And, you know, we'll help you find it, but you have to step away from the fear. And that's kind of the moral, that's the moral core of that story. It really reminded me as I was reading the story uh, so clearly of, you know, Yoda talking about how fear leads to anger and then yeah. to hate and then to suffering. And, and these people were living that out quite literally throughout the story because they, they couldn't let go of the fear that was driving everything else. You know, there wasn't there wasn't any other emotion that they were allowing to drive themselves. And uh, it is a scary thought that uh, we live in a world, uh, you know, and as reading this story, you know, it, it's very clear we live in a world that is driven more by emotionalism than much else these days you know uh, we do kind of i feel like lack the logic of the uh the spock character you know we all just kind of are all mccoys these days <laughs> and it's a it's a scary thought that um we're, we're not using everything we've been given as a species to to uh, think about things you know we're, we're allowing the basis of emotion of fear to drive us instead of anything else and I liked watching that play out here in this story uh, and almost lead to an utter annihilation of an entire race because of one emotion, fear. Yeah, it's all about, you know, trying to appeal to the sort of better angels of your nature. And, and what we're seeing here is we see, you know, people push right to the very edge when, as you say, they don't listen to that, when they just kind of get, you know, engulfed in, in this, this terror, which turns into anger and, and then they can't they can't climb down from it. You know, they, they go to this place, you know, the dials turned up to 11 of sort of maximum anger about everything. And then it's like, well, why can't you step back? 
why can't you take a breath and step back, take your hand off your gun, you know, reach, reach out and shake someone's hand instead of trying to sort of like punch them, you know, why can't you take that step? And that's the place where all of this is, is sort of teetering on that abyss of the, you know, can you listen to the better angels of your nature? Can you, can you step away from fear and anger and hopefully find a better path? Hmm. Well, kind of almost related to that, like uh, a very kind of similar theme here I noticed was kind of the idea of uh, prejudice or preconceptions, really. Um, so, for example, like the Bregel and their notion of the nature of the Sahari based on how they live, they assume that, you know, they they live kind of similarly to them and make assumptions based on that. And interestingly, I kind of saw that mirrored a little bit with the uh, Federation Diplomatic Corps and the and the ambassador's preconceptions of Kirk, you know, the kind of person that she would encounter coming on board. And just how, you know, we kind of see things um, from our own perspective. And until we get that other perspective, we just make kind of blindly make decisions based on uh what we preconceive to be true and that kind of when you combine that with the fear that they all have it just really creates explosive results mm, that's and that's definitely uh something i was trying to do there i'm i'm very fond of of having kind of uh macro and micro stories that are reflective of each other so you know the larger arc of the narrative will also reflect a smaller arc of narrative and and that's the, the point you make there is you know when uh kirk meets um zur the um the the Raja is I can't remember what species uh, Randorite. She's uh, the 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 Randorite uh, ambassador. Is I wanted very much to kind of create a character who would be a bit of a foil for Kirk as well. So she, you know she's she's good looking and she's kind of sharp and quick and sexy. You know, and I, I wanted to to somebody who would be able to challenge Kirk kind of on his own level. But she very much comes into it with like preconceptions of who he is. And she thinks, you know, this, this, this guy, I'm going to have to walk into the room and I'm going to have to put him in his place because I've read all these things that say that like, you know, he's cocky and he's, he's going to do all this kind of stuff. And the only way I'm going to deal with him is to out cocky him. Right. So to, to go in there and basically kind of like, no, I'm the alpha dog in the situation. And of course that's not, that's not all Kirk is, you know, it's only one facet of who he is. And, and he points that out to her and he says, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to look at all the things I've done in my life where I haven't quite done it right then you have to also consider all the stuff where i've done my job very well you know you know if you're going to use that as a stick to beat me with here's all the stuff i did right you know here's all the times i've been a really good captain so she has you know her prejudice there and and to a degree so does he you know because every time an ambassador's come on board the ship it's been somebody who's throwing their weight around and telling them what to do so they both kind of you know have these preconceived notions about who each other is and as you say, at the same time, you know, we have we have the Brekel who have, you know, they live in this sort of um, clannish society. And because they haven't had contact with aliens outside, they assume every other species lives the same way they do. And they can't, at least at the beginning of the story, they can't get their heads around the idea that actually for somebody else, it doesn't work that way. And so, you know, people come at it from a completely different point of view. And they are, and so, you know, all of these characters are trying to, you know, at the beginning of the story, they're not trying to get past their prejudice because they think they're right. And it's only as the story goes on is that all of them get to see, actually, you know, you're not right. You're just seeing part of the equation. You're not seeing the whole thing. For for that storyline specifically, I really liked that uh, Kirk and, uh, you know, so many times he has that kind of romantic foil, but I really liked that you left that uh, low-key 
and 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 you didn't really resolve that storyline. That tension is still there, but it it added a great part to the storyline to show that you know uh, Kirk isn't just like uh, you know there's the bad perception that he is just the horn dog, you know, <laughs> like and but I really liked that you you put him in a place where he recognizes that that's there. She recognizes that that's there. But this isn't just a silly '60s show, you know, like he has better things to do. And, you know, now they're on a, a different playing field. So if they ever met at a star base or something, they'd probably have dinner together and, and have a great night. But it wasn't about that. And I, I just like that you left that tension unresolved because it made it kind of, I don't know, it, it just made it sweeter in the story, you know, it, because it's there and it's very TOS, but it doesn't get to that point where it's so cliche you start to roll your eyes. You, I thought mm-hmm. you really handled those two characters well, and, and you made them come off in a way that's um, very professional, you know, instead of some of the ways that sometimes Kirk comes off <laughs> in uh, <laughs> some of the episodes, not all of them. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's not, let's not be shy about it. There is definitely some serious unresolved sexual tension bubbling away between those two there. And, and, and part of that, I think both of them, you know, into that idea. And I think if maybe there hadn't been so much terrible stuff happening and, and, you know, danger and death at every turn, maybe if, if this had been a kind of kinder, kinder, gentler story, maybe the two of them, you know, might've ended up together. But, Mm -hmm. but when they're, when they're thrust into a situation where he's like, you know, this is far more important than something as Mm -hmm. trivial as as hooking up. Right. So they, they're like, you know, we'll put that stuff to one side. And yeah, like you say, I, I could see them, you know, maybe meeting up later on and saying, well, you know, let's see where this goes. Maybe there might be something there, but I certainly think, um, you know, they're not, it's not just a sort of cliched, Oh, she's the pretty girl. She's the foil for captain cook in this particular, she's the girl in the port for this episode. I didn't want it to be like that. You know, I wanted very much that to to show that, you know, that she's somebody who, you know, has uh, her her own kind of well-defined personality. And she isn't just there to be the pretty girl, for Kirk to fall in love with in, in this episode. Well, and, and that was something that uh, I loved her being there too, because, you know, this whole book, it, it really dives into something that's huge in Star Trek, which is this idea of the prime directive and Kirk's relationship to it. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you about that because Kirk seems to definitely stretch, if not break the prime directive when he decides he won't leave, even though he's been asked to. And the way in which Kirk, being the captain on, you know, the the edge of the final frontier has to make those choices, you know, the rules aren't just, they have to be a little bit malleable in that, you know, is he really going to let this civilization die just because, you know, we made a rule and uh, it can never be broken? That's that's totally where he's coming from, you know, because he's he's looking at this situation and and what Kirk's asking himself is as a man, as a you know, not just as a as Captain James T. Kirk, but as as a person, would I be able to live with myself if if we packed up and went home, and would my crew, you know, be able to live with themselves? How would I be thought of by the people who served with me, my friends, and you know, how would I be able to kind of go on, knowing that I did, you know, follow the letter of the law? but allowed something terrible to take place. And, you know, we know James T. Kirk, you know, he's not going to do that. And he's that guy who's going to say, you know, this is the right choice to make. Even if it isn't the right choice on paper, it's the choice I'm going to make here and now. And, you know, if it had gone all ter- terribly, horribly wrong, 
I can imagine him going back to Starfleet and saying, well, you know, put me in cuffs and, and drum me out of the fleet. But, you know, but I know I did the right, I know I tried to do the right thing. And so that's, that's very much where that, that moment comes from. He does, you know, he does bend and tie the prime directive in knots quite a lot of times. I mean, let's be, let's be honest about it. But it is very much that idea that in the TOS era, the captains are, you know, this, and, and the crews and the ships, are, you know, this microcosm of the Federation, that they're out there beyond the frontier, that they don't have the opportunity to kind of call back to Starbase, whatever, and say, what should I really be doing in this situation? You know, they have to make that choice. So they have that degree of freedom, but they also kind of get enough rope to hang themselves with if it all goes the wrong way. And that's kind of the, the tension of where Kirk is in this situation. And I think in, in previous stories where he's, you know, bent the prime directive. Well, and I always uh, come back to, especially loved that in this book that uh, you had Kurt, that you had McCoy get a little bit testy with her and say, look, they're more like guidelines anyway. Yeah. I mean, come on, you know, like you, you it, it, it is a guideline for the principle of, of interacting with these species. But when it comes to actually being in the situation, we have to have room for interpretation or else, you know, we're going to let terrible things happen and we're going to hide behind our rules. And that's just that who we really want to be. And I loved that you gave McCoy that great speech to her because it's like, well, of course, that's the way we should picture it, you know. Uh, and that was the wonderful thing about the crew of the Enterprise is that, you know, Kirk gets knocked a lot for, for bending the rules, but he also saved a lot of people. And when he you had him, you know, defending his utter the decisions too, you know, he made the best decision he could most of the time with the information and with the resources he had available. And they weren't always perfect. That's just part of being alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, going back to what we were saying about McCoy having the visceral emotional reaction, that's very much where that speech comes from because it's, you know, how can we let these people die? How could you even possibly contemplate the idea of doing that? And to him, that's, you know, that's a no brainer. There's absolutely no duality in that. Of course we will stay. Of course we will help these people. That is what we have to do because it's the right choice to make. And he doesn't like Zur either. You know, that's, that's also where that conversation comes from is he looks at her and I think there's something along the lines where she says to him, do you think I, I life, people like me lie for a living? And he basically says, well, yes, because, you know, you're, you're kind of, you, you have to be in a way kind of slightly dishonest because you can't, get, you can't show your hand straight away when you're an ambassador. But he doesn't like that. You know, McCoy is very much what you, what you see is what you get. You know, he's all up there on the surface. And so immediately he, you know, when you put him in a room with a character like Zura, there's, there's going to be a bit of tension and friction. And, and that sort of dialogue is, is, is him expressing that, his differing viewpoint from hers, and also the larger viewpoint of the moral, morally correct choice to make in this situation. Well, as like a, a former school teacher too, it really reminds me like this whole prime directive debate really reminds me of things like zero tolerance policies and that sort of thing that can kind of you know, just crush students under the wheels of, of the rules and that sort of thing. And I find it really interesting that Zur is, you know, here and is kind of the face of that, you know, if she wasn't there, we would just get, you know, Kirk kind of doing his usual thing. But to have the kind of person who's the keeper of the rules there uh, hanging over him like a sort of Damocles, it just, you know, it, it really drives home, um, you know, really Kirk's view on the prime directive and, and McCoy, like you said, really being the champion for these people really came across really well here. 
And, you know, Zua's kind of got her own agenda there as well. You know, I mean, she's not kind of lily white in this situation either. She's not just kind of, mm. like you say, I am the rule book and I will, you know, every time you try and do something cool, I'll be the one going, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> you know, she's not the wet blanket, right? But she's also there because she wants something out of this. You know, she's mm. looking at this as an opportunity to to kind of, you know, make her bones. You know, she she wants to come out with a, you know, do this really cool thing and come back with a, a great reputation and, and she's probably looking at Kirk and thinking, well, here's James T. Kirk and he's always a troublemaker. And, and if I can keep him in line and then come back with a victory, isn't that going to make me look great? You know, so she's, she's got all of that kind of stuff going on as well. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, she's not a bad person. She's not just interested in, in her own aggrandizement. You know, she understands the idea of the, the sort of like the natures of the, the, the morally gray area that, that, you know, you can't have a rule book for every single possible opportunity in, instance. And so when push comes to shove, she takes Kirk's side or rather, mm-hmm. you know, they both find themselves on the same side because they both understand that what is the right thing to do is to kind of intervene and stop, you know, the destruction of possibly two different civilizations here because of, of, of one man's mistake. I did want to ask you with that, um, where the idea for the the Cosmosome and its kind of creation came up, because it was funny, just a, a few, and I know you're a huge fan as well, uh, just a couple weeks ago, there was a great Rebels episode, Star Wars Rebels, where they met these space whales yeah. uh, that could also um, go to hyperspace uh, and... You know, then I was I was so cool. You know, I was reading this book, and and you have these cosmosomes that are that are basically like living ships. You know, uh, and and so I was wondering where that idea had come from because to me that was really fascinating because we've seen certain types of cosmosomes, and this was just another great addition to the craziness that is the Star Trek you know galaxy and what you can actually find out there. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I was reaching for when I was writing this is, is that I wanted to tap into the tonality of, of episodes that I've really enjoyed that have a big sort of crazy space weirdness going on. So stuff like the Doomsday Machine or the Immunity Syndrome, you know, where mm-hmm. where the characters encounter a phenomenon, uh, you know, of, of great size and strange complexity, you know, that that is completely new and alien to them. And, and I knew I wanted to do something like that. And I wanted to do kind of, you know, a, a, a very big destructive threat that would be that would be able to threaten kind of like an entire civilization, entire star system. And it all crystallized into something that I wrote down in my notes. I wrote Star Trek versus Godzilla. <laughs> and that was kind of where the idea came from. <laughs> I thought, what's the what what is the Star Trek equivalent of a kaiju? You know, how do, mm, how do yeah, I how nice. do I do, you know, the Enterprise's gypsy danger versus a kaiju monster. How do I do Star Trek does Pacific Rim? How do I, you know, create something like that? And I thought, well, the idea of the living planet is, is it's a, it's a kind of crazy hokey classic sci-fi idea of, of the idea of a, of a object of planetary size being a living organism. And it's not really something that we've seen in Star Trek very much. And I thought that's a cool idea. The idea of a planet eating planet, you know, to me, I just thought, was was just big and crazy and it felt like a tos style idea it felt like that this is the world where i could tell that sort of story and have something of of that kind of magnitude and have it fit tonally into the narrative and so i I just you know once i started putting the idea of of that together and then the concept of it being used 
um, like a kind of uh, a, a, a battle elephant. You know, there's this idea of that, you know, that there were tribes who would use, you know, drive mm, elephants before yeah. them to sort of trample the village of, of, of their enemies. And I thought, well, if, what if we do this with this, this huge thing is that this creature, this perfectly innocent creature has been driven to violence and it's been turned into a weapon of war. And then what are the consequences of that? And it comes back to, you know, bite everybody in the backside. And so that was where the, the concept of the creature, the Cosmozoan sort of was, was built from. And also, you know, the, the scope and the visual imagery of, of you know, of, of a massive planet kicking out these blasts of energy and, and then having to, the Enterprise having to literally fly inside it to, and seeing the interior of all of that. And that led me to um, come up with the title, which is where um, the latter fire comes from. Is it's, it's from this uh, Tennyson poem called The Kraken. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the poem is all about, you know, a gigantic sea monster. And it has all these, you know, sort of beautiful imagery. And, and as soon as I looked at it, you know, Star Trek loves to have its allusions to sort of classic literature. I thought, that's a match made in heaven, you know. And, I, and once I yes. read the poem, I came yes. across, uh, you know, the, 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 the title, The Latter Fire. And I thought that to me feels like a, a very much kind of TOS style sort of title. And I have Kirk um, quoting from, the, from the, um, the poem a couple of times in the dialogue. And I thought it just sort of all came together very nicely there. Well, in the... Ghosts in the Darkness. I uh, made me think of that that film because you referenced that with Ohura. Uh, you know the idea of the lions that you know uh, get a taste for human flesh, and then they that's all that they want after that. They kind of go crazy, and so I loved how you just worked in all of these things to really make it come alive and and feel like you know as it, big and crazy as this is. No, it 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 it, it felt realistic, and I, it it really. I never actually questioned it like, oh, this is just ridiculous. Like it just felt like, no, this is completely something that w- is in the realm of possibility in Star Trek. And I have to say, like, I love the uh, you mentioned the Star Trek versus Godzilla thing. Um, I really got that feeling, especially uh, when we saw some parts kind of from the the Leviathan's perspective and the fact that, you know, these little ships are buzzing around and he doesn't even really notice them kind of thing. Um, you know, the Star Trek versus Godzilla thing that, that, oh, that as soon as you said that, that makes perfect sense. Like, I love that kind of, uh, idea that, you know, there are things out there that don't even really notice us. They're just, you know, doing their thing and, and we're like, you know, buzzing insects to them. I thought that was great. Mm, and and that's also, I think, you know, the, the idea of, of, of the, that nature produces, crazy things that we can barely even conceive of and and you know if you go out in the space you can expect to see stuff that pushes the boundary even further so to me it fitted perfectly in in this kind of story one of the the neatest things about the story for me and and it's one of the i i would expect for a writer it's got to be the hardest thing to do which is that everyone has something to do you know, and I felt like your utilization of characters like McCoy uh, and like Ohura and Scotty, all of them get something really important to do with the story and feel so integral. And, you know, that like you were talking about this idea of obviously the Enterprise is a found family and that they all have to work together as one unit to to make things happen. And so the way that you integrated them all was was so awesome, especially for me. And McCoy is always my favorite. So the fact that he was integral into a story, which most of the time I feel like in an original series episode, he would have been forgotten about later on. 
it was so cool. I wanted to hear about for you what it's like to try and make that happen in the story so that, you know, each crew member feels like they get some time to shine. Yeah, that's, you know, that's always a thing. It's always an issue um, doing any kind of ensemble storytelling, especially when you're doing something that's based on a licensed franchise, you know, because you know there's going to be somebody out there whose favorite character is this one guy and they're going to want to read that character in this book doing something cool, even if it's only just one thing. And it's, it's unfair to, to write a story where, you know, you don't serve those characters well. So from the very beginning, you know, I, I sat down with a list of the characters and I was thinking, okay, I want to make sure that everybody has an arc of some sort. Everybody has a way to contribute to this story. So that was very much baked in from the get-go to, to make sure that, you know, everybody could do something cool. Everybody could have their kind of moment in the spotlight, which is not something you always get to do on a television series. Because right. with an ongoing show, you know, you can have an episode. Well, this is the Kirk episode next week, but next week's episode might be, you know, we'll do a McCoy episode or we'll do a story about Uhura. But with a, with a novel, you know, you've got a larger canvas. You, you're, you're telling what is essentially kind of almost like a feature film or a miniseries kind of length story. So I think it's key to, you know, to make sure all of those characters are in there and that they get to play to their strengths. Because at the end of the day, it's an ensemble story. So, you know, you have to make sure everybody has that opportunity to just have that one cool moment if, or, or more than one, hopefully. It's a it's a really interesting thing because I've been watching through. We're doing the big series from there to here on the network. And so I'm actually been going through some season two. And that same thing really happened the other day. You know, I'm watching Friday's Child and it, it really is a very much a McCoy episode there's a lot of McCoy in that episode you know and then you get to the next episode and it's not as much and and so I just love how you know that really worked out in this story ends because I think each one of these characters really does have something to offer um and in and I'm wondering for you too uh, because I know it's got to be tough you know all of these characters have been written about so much what's it like for you to try and add something to them um, so that, you know, as a, somebody's reading this story, they're like, oh, huh, that's a great way to think about that character. Yeah, that, that, that is the challenge. I mean, with Star Trek, I mean, gosh, how many, how many Star Trek stories are there out there? You know, if, yeah. if, if not, and not, not just kind of like, you know, on screen stuff, but, but comic books, games, novels, you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff out there. So that is the challenge to try and look at that character and say, well, look, you can't change anything radical about them because obviously it's part of an ongoing series and you have to put the toys back in the box at the end of the day. So the challenge is, how can you open that character up? How can you unfold them in a slightly different way or at least put them in a circumstance where you shine a light on them and, and highlight an aspect mm-hmm. that perhaps maybe wasn't that well served in the TV series or, you know, is just kind of interesting. I mean, the, one of the things I did for, for Lanta Fire is, is I put um, Spock and Uhura together to basically, you know, solve a problem, which isn't really a pairing that we saw very much in the TV show. Very true. Mm-hmm. And it was fun for me to write it because in the back of my head, I'm thinking about the, you know, the 2009, you know, New Trek universe, which of course has a completely different relationship between Spock and Uhura. And as I was writing, mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, I wonder, is some of that bubbling away in, in the, in the prime universe there is, is, you know, would people read this and think that that's kind of an allusion to, to that show, uh, to, to that movie. And I thought, well, I'll leave that for people to decide whether they think that's true or not. 
But for me, it was interesting to have those two characters working side by side and bringing their unique skill set together to, to solve this problem. Because it's, as I say, it's not something we really saw very often on the TV mm-hmm. show. Yeah, I, I do have to admit reading that that did enter my mind a little bit. I was kind of wondering like, huh, interesting, because, you know, they are the same people in the two universes. So, uh, you know, presumably there would have been, you know, and, and we see it a little bit in the original series in a couple scenes, arguably, that, you know, yeah, there could be something between these two. Um, and, you know, it's a really interesting pairing. And I thought professionally working together was was a really interesting take to uh, to show with these characters. Yeah, it's not like they're going to go out on a date at the end of the story, you know, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, you know, that is something that uh, about uh, Star Trek that was always interesting to me in general. And, and whether you like it or not about the, the new JJ-verse... Uh, um, I, I do think it's interesting, the idea that, you know, these people, I, I can't imagine them not having some kind of relationship, you know, uh, that that goes beyond and, and people finding that, you know, it. and so I, I love that that kind of happens more in the novels and things and it, it makes sense to me, you know, you just, you're out there and you, all you've got is each other and, you know, whether or not Spock and Uhura might actually become a couple is an, is one thing but you know just the fact that it it would happen you know i was always thankful that deep space nine finally allowed people to start getting in relationships together when you spend that much time together it's gonna happen <laughs> yeah i mean i think you know it, it and it's not just as simple as kind of like oh are these are these two characters going to become sort of like boyfriend girlfriend it's 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 not that kind of cut and dry you know real life's much more complicated than that and and i also like the idea of showing you know, male and female characters working together. And it doesn't immediately mean that they have to mm-hmm. have a relationship is that we can have, you know, people of the you know, opposite genders working with each other. And it can be a platonic, sensible, professional, um, warm, friendly relationship, even with a degree of love to it, but not necessarily mm-hmm. that kind of love. Right. You know, it's, it's important to sort of show that, you know, these two characters are working together. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to end up in bed together at the end of the story. And, and that's also, something that's shown in the, the, the relationship that Kirk has with, um, with Zura in this story mm-hmm. is that it doesn't immediately have to end with that kind of cliched sort of solution at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that is something that uh, I was talking with my friend John Mills uh, on our show, Aggressive Negotiations. We were kind of talking about the way that we kind of over-sexualize everything these days. And like, just because two characters are together doesn't mean they have to fall in love with each other. You know, like... Men and women can be friends. Men and men can be friends. Women and women can be friends. And you don't have to go there every single time. And sometimes it's more novel to not <laughs> because, um, you know, having two colleagues work really close together, become friends, and that be all there is, is just as wonderful and just as important as life as, as having somebody whose relationship you go even deeper with. You know, and and so I I really I really liked that about this story, and and I just loved the way that even with Eric's watching the dir- the direction of, and how the crew all works together, I think he's almost like in awe of how they work in concert. And I loved that as you were talking about earlier that perspective of the outside looking in. And kind of, I feel like he's getting his take, his first taste of what Chekhov tries to describe in those letters, mm. but it's hard to do in text. <laughs> yeah, and he actually, you know, thought Chekhov was was 
you know, exaggerating things, but now he's like, oh, maybe he was kind of downplaying. <laughs> this is nuts, you know. <laughs> so I've always had this idea that, like, there's there's obviously some guy working at Starfleet Command whose job it is to to sort of take in the, the captain's log. So you can imagine this guy in an office, right? And, oh, here's the log from the USS Lexington. Oh, what were you doing? Oh, they were trying gaseous anomalies. Oh, okay. And he files that way. And, oh, here's the other one from this ship. And they were, oh, they didn't made first contact with some aliens. Oh, that's fine. And then one from Kirk comes in and he goes, today our ship was grabbed by a giant green glowing hand in space. <laughs> yes. And it's like, it's, like, it's like, what now? And you imagine that guy, you know, going to the 602 club at the end of the day going, you know what? I think that Kirk guy's like drinking or something. Because, because, you know, last week he was saying he went to kind of planet of the sort of the, the Chicago mobs. And this week <laughs> he, he's saying that, like, you know, he, he met his evil mirror duplicate. You know, I think he's just making this stuff up just to mess with me. Yeah, he's asking Ruby's ancestor, how many bottles of Saurian brandy have you sent the Enterprise recently? <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I kind of was I wanted to play that out a little bit with Arix because Arix is kind of a, a bit of a straight laced sort of character. And I, and I can imagine him being that guy, you know, Chekhov sending him a letter saying, well, we did this today. And Arix going, yeah, well, you know, young, young Pavel there, he's probably just kind of, over, you know, making making it a bit bigger than it actually is. And then when he gets out there on the front, front lines right there in the frontier he's like oh actually you know things are out here are kind of crazy and wild well and it's funny because uh, recently dan and i on the show have been talking through uh some of the gold key comics in fast fact our last episode was was that and you know those are the issues like if those were really the stories we got on star trek yes i can imagine somebody being like okay this is ridiculous because <laughs> that did not happen <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've 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 read some of those, and they are kind of pretty pretty crazy stuff going on there, you know. But it's it's funny when you look at those, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen the um, the the British um, strips comics that were done. There's there's a book that's just come out recently. I think a, a big reprint of all the all the comics from the 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 Joe ninety and TV twenty one stuff that was done in the UK in the sixties. Oh yeah, the kind of like motion picture era. No, no, this is this is this is pre-motion picture stuff. Oh, okay. Um, and and you know, and, and some of it has the same kind of stuff where, like, you know, the Enterprise landing on a planet on it with its jets and stuff like that, and and you know, and characters saying something like "thundering space jets, Captain," you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but it also has some some really sort of wacky kind of ideas. So uh, yeah, there is a little bit of that kind of going on in there, but not too much, I think. Well, James, uh, for you, uh, obviously, the ladder fire is now out for everyone but uh wondering what is coming up next for you and what will you be working on um you know i know you've been all over the place you know with working on uh, disney infinity with star wars and so much stuff so i'm just kind of wondering what you've got next in the bag well right now in terms of um in star trek stuff um right now um we don't have anything contracted so um Delivering uh, Ladder Fire was was my last Star Trek novel for the moment. But having said that, you know, um, I certainly want to come back and do more because, you know, I love writing Star Trek and I can just talk about it all day long, you know. Um, and I'm always looking for, for new and interesting stories to tell. And I have an idea I've been kicking around for a while about another Titan novel. So oh, maybe that could be excellent. something. But right now, um, things are sort of up in the air. So I can't sort of uh, give any sort of firm description about that. But beyond um, Star Trek stuff, what else have I got coming up? Um, let's see. Well, the, the, the biggest deal is in, uh, in June, uh, I have a novel coming out called Nomad. And it's, uh, although you might think Star Trek related, it actually isn't. 
<laughs> with the title like that. <laughs> it's um, it's uh, it's an original novel. It's um, an espionage action thriller, and it's uh, kind of set in the modern day. Um, and that's uh, so that's a big change for me going jumping genres into into something that's more modern day, more action and adventure sort of oriented. Uh, and I've been working on that for the the last couple of years. So that's uh, that's a very big deal for me. I hope that's going to do very well. That's coming out from Zafra Books, I think, in June the 16th in the UK. Oh, excellent. Excellent. We'll have to keep an eye out for that for sure. And I believe um, we're talking to a couple of US publishers as well. So I'm hoping that a US version will be following pretty soon. Excellent. Um, also, just announced this week, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, an upcoming video game called No Man's Sky. I am not. It's no. uh, it's you, you guys should check it out. It's really really great. It's it's a uh, it's a sort of first person space exploration game. Uh, oh, very cool. much has a very sort of uh, it's strangely enough a very sort of bright colorful look, a little bit like the TOS series, but very oh, much cool. inspired by the kind of the cover artwork that you'd see on like 1970s sci-fi novels. Oh, nice. And uh, and that is coming out later this this year. And I've just been announced to do um, a, a short story, which is going to be coming out with the game's limited edition. And uh, that's going to have artwork done by um, Dave Gibbons, who was the the guy who drew the artwork for stuff like um, Watchmen. So that's, you know, it's it's really great to be working with him. You know, I'm such a great fan of his artwork and it's fantastic to have, you know, have his stuff, him illustrating what I'm writing. Oh, oh, goodness. And then beyond that, I've done a a tie-in novel for um, the, the next Deus Ex video game, Deus Ex Mankind Divided, which is coming out uh, August 23rd. So I did some work on the video game, and I've also written this uh, this tie-in novel called Black Light, which will be covering the gap between that game and the previous one. And beyond that, a bunch of other sort of bits and pieces, which I can't really talk about right now, and some some other video game projects. So keeping busy. That's awesome. And uh, two as well, if ever if anyone would like to interact with you online, where is the best place for people to find you? Well, I'm pretty much uh, on Twitter most of the time. Um, when I should be working, you know, I, I tend to waste way too much time sitting there and, and talking about silly things, but yeah, so you, you, you can find me, you can find me on, on Twitter at JM swallow. Um, I've got a Tumblr page, um, which again is just JM swallow. Although I don't tend to, I, I, I'll publish kind of stuff like, um, cover artwork from my books and that sort of thing. But generally, uh, once a week I try and post something up on my blog and that is, um, James swallow or one word jameswallow.blogspot.co.uk oh and i also have a uh, there's a, i've got a goodreads page as well if, if anybody ever has uh, any questions for me uh, you can feel free to go to the goodreads page and there's a little ask the author bar there and you can feel free to write that in there and i'll try and answer any i can in a clever and wiki fashion awesome that's great james well thank you again so much for for being with us uh we're we're putting the call out pocket books need to make sure that james has new books coming out so just <laughs> Just saying. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure. Oh, guys, you know, always good to be on the show. Always great to talk to you. Like I always say, I can just sit here and, and chat about, you know, Star Trek writing. It's awesome. I can just do that all day long. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and keep up the good work because I'm always listening. You know, I'm, I'm always uh, listening into the to the episodes and stuff. You're, you're kind of like my um, my afternoon podcast listening put oh, my feet up and listen oh, to a thing nice. so like i just Thank downloaded you. a new episode before you guys logged on today so uh, oh, i'll be wow. listening to that one later on well thanks Excellent. so much that that really yeah. means a lot <laughs> you too guys thanks a lot 
Dan, it is just so much fun to have James back on the show to talk about his latest book. And I'm I'm so excited for him, you know, knowing him for so long now that he really got to make that dream come true of playing in the TOS universe in that really classic era. Absolutely, Matthew. You know, doing these author interviews really is the best these author interviews really is the best thing about uh doing literary treks. And yeah, James especially, we always end up having an amazing conversation and to really get that insight into what it's like to write for Star Trek uh, in this universe that he obviously cares so passionately about. It's a, it's a real treat. And it, it's just so fun because, you know, being in that TOS era, but really getting to play and be in the TAS era and mm-hmm. have it feel so real was a lot of fun in in the way that you know I, I just he had such a great handle on how to make it feel as if everything that was happening could happen in the Star Trek universe and I didn't question it at all and it it didn't matter that you know Eric's was there you know we have a almost up like a planet killer kind of thing but in a whole new way that's a living machine planet that can go to warp like it just was it's the best part about star trek you know is is creating something outlandish and fun and cool and and strangely all of that makes for relevancy you know with mm-hmm. the conversation that we're getting with the political ramifications the idea of, of fear and all that kind of stuff it's just perfect it's it's what makes star trek still relevant today agreed completely all of that is just really in the tone of Star Trek, the the over-the-top, bombastic, awesome space stuff combined with that philosophical message and that, you know, the, the words that really make you stop and think about the world around you and examine deep social issues, I think, like, that's what Star Trek is for me. I, I, I can't put it any simpler than that. This book is just, this is Star Trek. Well, we really want to thank the associate producers we have through Patreon who make sure that uh, we can continue to do this on Literary Treks each and every week for you guys. Uh, We'd love to thank Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatullah, and Bruce Gibson. All of them know that we're a listener-supported network here on Trek FM, and what that means is that we need your help to make sure that all of the shows keep coming to each week. It's it's definitely an expensive process. We have over 20 different shows now on the network and special feeds. We've got things coming to you. We really are excited to have the support of listeners like them to make sure that all the content comes to you each week through all of the different shows. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of the team. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. And we've got some special perks that are there for you, producer credit, seats on the content development team. We've got the Patreon roundtable, so much more. So make sure you check that out at patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Dan, when you're not trying to decide between the yellow command uniform and the wraparound green tunic, where can we find you? <laughs> well, you know, both of them, they're they are really amazing costume choices. Uh, you can find me online. Uh, my website is treklet.com, and that's where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Treklet Reviews. And you can find me on Instagram. My username there is Kurtrats47. 
And also, I'm, of course, kicking around the Babel Conference, where we're talking about all things Star Trek all the time. And Matthew, when you're not welcoming new three-armed crew members aboard the ship, where can we find you? Well, uh, goodness, it's always hard to find the uniform that fits them just right, so <laughs> that takes a while. You can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also doing The Orb here on the network with Christopher Jones. We're talking about Deep Space Nine. I do The 602 Club, where, as James mentioned, everybody gets together. We talk about all things geeky, but aren't really Star Trek, because we talk a lot of Star Trek in the network, so we have a lot of other fandoms that we like to get to there. We pick a new topic there each week. Uh, we just talked about uh, Harry Potter, the Chamber of Secrets recently. That was so much fun, so make sure you check that out and all the other topics that we're talking about there on the 602 Club. And as a lot of people know, I have a brand new podcast with John Mills where we're talking about Star Wars, called Aggressive Negotiations, and you can find that over at thenerdparty.com and, of course, on iTunes. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.